You're listening to the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your host, Stephen Michael and Sonny Hollywood Pooney. All right, so it's March 10th, 88. I go to see Megadeth and Dio. Megadeth's okay. There was a lot of whining happening by Mustaine. Dio comes up does two or three songs and then I start seeing devil horns of this weird devil thing in the back starts like talking or whatever and I got scared do you know who the guitar player was on stage at that point I'm gonna guess judging from the fact that this show is another one of our epic interviews that it was Craig Goldie uh, yes, sir, it was. <laughs> was This was the Sacred Heart Tour or the Dream Evil Tour? Dream Evil. Okay. Yeah, beginning of, beginning of 88. And yeah, and we left there. <laughs> Me and my best friend were like, uh, yeah, this is a little too weird. It, it felt too close to devil worshiping, so we took off. Ah, to be young and dumb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We were both 18, so it was like, uh, this one's, uh, we just saw Striper a few months ago. Like, this doesn't feel right. <laughs> Dude, at 18, I would have been embracing that shit. <laughs> yeah, so I've seen, uh, I've seen Craig Goldie a few times with Dio. I think I saw him at the end of the Sacred Heart tour because I think he replaced Vivian midway through the tour. And then I saw him again on a couple of subsequent tours. And, you know, he's, he's a fantastic guitar player. And this interview, he was super gracious to spend just a ton of time with us, way more than I think he needed to. But I seriously enjoyed it. And it was just a great conversation. It wasn't really an interview at all. It was more of just kind of hanging out and getting his story and shooting the shit. And he's an interesting dude, for sure, because... I think that his brain is wired a special way and it's very conducive to him being an artistic person. And I'm not just saying that from a musicianship standpoint. I'm saying that because he is an artist. He draws, he paints, he writes music, obviously plays guitar. He picked up guitar fairly quickly. I just think that he sees things and hears things in a much different pattern than the average person. And you'll see what I'm talking about by some of the comments in this conversation. And we even kind of talk about that a little bit. But yeah, it was a really, really fun time talking to him for a couple hours and just getting some of the stories and some of his memories of Ronnie James Dio, as well as we get into Jeffrey and Rough Cut and some of those things that happened early on in his career. Yeah, that sounds cool. I'm looking forward to this interview because uh, here's another Dio guitarist that I don't know a ton about. Goldie's been on a bunch of stuff that I have, but it's a lot of like cover stuff. And a few albums, obviously, but uh, and I've I haven't heard a ton of this Dream Child. I've only heard a couple of songs. I liked what I heard, though. 
Uh, Dream Child record is really good. I mean, it definitely shows some of the influences that he and I talk about as far as the deep purple and the rainbow. Uh, so it definitely has that. Diego, you know, has um, Ronnie James Dio similarities in his voice. So there's definitely aspects of Dio in the music. But I've gone through it three or four times, and I think it's a really strong record. I think people are going to enjoy that record. So that's very cool. I think he's done a lot of side stuff just, you know, because he's a working musician these days. And we all know that working musicians these days, in order to pay the bills, they have to do 20 or 30 things. And he and I, we talk a little bit about that as well. I mean, it's not like Craig was from the old school and made millions of dollars in the 80s. He didn't, you know, he was a hired gun. Uh, because he was uh, part of the Dio band. He did some co-writing, and that's great, but uh, he just never, you know, I mean, he never made a, a boatload of cash, and so he's forced to continue to work, and he has no problem with that, but he just wants to make a living, so, you know? Yeah, yeah, and I forgot he was in the Resurrection Kings. I love that album. Yeah, we talk a little bit about that as well. We cover a little bit of that. I mean, we cover pretty much all the aspects of uh many of the people he played with he's got some great stories from the road we talk a little bit about hearing aid you know it's just a really really solid fun interview so uh, i urge people to listen all the way through and uh, let us know what you think of it because uh craig gold definitely an interesting person i think he's got a good book in him somewhere yeah this should be a good one i I love what parts of the story I've heard. So uh, let's get to it. All right. We'll talk at you folks next week. Enjoy this epic interview with Mr. Craig Goldie from Dream Child, formerly of Ronnie James Dio's band. Later. Hi, this is Craig Goldie. You best know me from Dio and Dio Disciples and now Dream Child. And you're listening to the Grown Up Rock podcast with Stephen and Sonny. Craig Goldie, welcome to the Grown Up Rock Podcast. How are you today? Oh, I'm good. How are you, my friend? I am doing awesome. Thanks for spending a little bit of time and going over the new Dream Child Project, as well as talking about some of your fantastic career that you've had. <laughs> well, thank you for that. <laughs> you've done a lot of amazing things, and we want to talk to you about some of them. But at Growing Up Rock, we kind of like to start in the early days to figure out uh, how you ended up the artist you are today. And so I know from some of the things that I've read, your childhood, your upbringing was not necessarily a great one. How did you end up being driven to play guitar or pick up guitar as an instrument? Well, it's all Richie Blackmore's fault. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can draw like a photograph and uh, paint and stuff like that. So everybody wanted me to be an artist. But whenever I got work as an artist, it just gave me migraines. And I would come home with these just debilitating migraines. But music was just, just, I knew that it was going to be more difficult to try to become a musician than an artist. But that's what was really calling to me deep down inside. And I was about 13 and I'd sit and listen to the radio 
you know, I like jazz, you know, but I couldn't stay on that station as that's okay. That's my station. I'm going to listen to same thing with classical and, uh, blues and rock and R and B R and B was the one that I stayed with the most and rock, but I couldn't just stay on one channel the whole entire day because it just didn't seem to feed whatever I wanted, you know, deep down inside. Right. And I heard the song burn from deep purple come on the radio. I got to go check out this album. You know, what What the heck is that? Right. So 
after hearing Burn on the radio, it was just so different than any other songs, you know, before, after it, or at all. There was this, you know, after the keyboard solo and guitar solo, there's like this classical piece, you know, there's, there's almost like a drum solo going on during the verse, this gruff sounding vocalist, and all of a sudden this almost like a, like a white Stevie Wonder kind of sound going on, you know, and it was like, what is this all about? So I had to go check it out. So I bought the album Burn. And the whole album was just like, it was all my favorite types of music mixed into one band. So it was like, okay, I'm done. You know, I don't have to go from radio station to radio station. I can just listen to Deep Purple. Right. <laughs> and that's what I did. You know, and it was just every song was had something that it was just like, because I can draw and paint, it also seemed like, you know, I would see colors and atmospherical pictures in my head. You know, this band gave me like a universe, you know, to when I closed my eyes and listened to it in the headphones, all of a sudden I would see things that I didn't see with other bands, too. There's all sorts of things like that. And Richie Blackmore was just like from another planet. So I was like, OK, wait a minute. I have got to learn how to play like that. And so that's what started the whole thing. You know, that's why I said it's Richie Blackmore's fault, you know, because nobody plays like him, you know, and I, you know, I try to come closer. I've got a couple of pretty cool Blackmore impressions out there. There's one with a band called Black Knights Rising with uh, um, Vinnie Apice and John West on vocals. And unfortunately, you know, our, our good friend, Elliot Rubinson on bass, who passed away. But uh, from the uh, Agora, I think it's called, uh, it's a mixture of like, the studio version, the onstage version with Rainbow, and Made in Europe, Deep Purple. And it's just real special when I get to do my little Blackmore impression. It's kind of, you know, karma. I don't I don't know what you want to call it, but you're, you were drawn to playing the guitar and music in general from Blackmore, and you ended up with, with Ronnie, which is, yep. of course, you know, part of uh, the Rainbow team, right? Yeah, I mean, it was, it literally was a dream come true, you know, and and even though, you know, yeah, we have, we've touched on that. I grew up in an abusive family. I mean, literally in and out of the hospital, stitches and surgeries. And I mean, when I was at the age of four, I was thrown face first into a windowsill wow. and had to get stitches when I was a, you know, tiny little kid. And, you know, that I remember that, you know, just one more, buddy, just one more. And it just never seemed to stop. Like yeah. you know, I kept thinking to myself, stop saying one more. Just keep, you know, if it's going to be. 12 just do 12 don't you know right so music was an escape for you then i'm guessing exactly yeah. and then and ronnie's voice you know when richie left deep purple it was like oh no you know that's when you know disco was kind of starting to take over right. i was like this is not happening this this cannot be true you know and then all of a sudden i'm hanging out with a friend of mine we're talking about getting the band together and i hear man on the silver mountain come on the radio i was like oh man <laughs>
all right, you know, Richie's back, but who is this, you know? And then he just became my favorite singer and always has been, always will and always has been my favorite singer. Not only did I get a chance to get Blackmore back and really cool music because then, you know, the Rainbow Rising and, and the Long Live Rock and Roll album with the Gates of Babylon and, you know, the Rainbow on stage. I mean, those really were the, that's what I was really drawn to even more. And then I started diving into Deep Purple and stuff. So it was an escape. But then five years later, you know, I'm headlining Madison Square Garden with my favorite singer, Ronnie James Dio, <laughs> you know, performing music that I listened to growing up and that we wrote together. And I'll never forget being able to call my dad, you know, and say, hey, dad, you know, we're headlining Madison Square Garden, you know. And he was like, you know what, son, all these years we've been telling you you can't do it. I'll be damned if you didn't do it. I'm proud of you. It was the first time he ever said anything like that. You know, and they kept saying, we're sorry, you know. And so, you know, I totally forgave him. The first time we, it was great. The first time we headlined the San Diego Sports Arena, you know, I got him a limo, you know. And then and then Ronnie and my dad ended up becoming buddies. There was a time when, uh, you know, it's no secret, you know, that Ronnie liked to smoke pot, you know. And so he would smoke pot in the backstage area. And there was these, a lot of times it's no secret that a lot of times the, Security guards are off-duty officers. So they got tired of being, you know, these off-duty officers going backstage and not being able to do a damn thing about people doing drugs. I mean, doing, you know, hard drugs, you know. So it was like, okay, for them, this was the last straw. They were going to go and make a, an example of Ronnie because he was smoking pot, you know. And my dad walks over to him, and that by that time he was on the vice squad. He had, he flashes his badge to these guys on their way in to make a bust, and he goes, "Where do you think you're going?" And they go, "Oh, nowhere, sir." <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. But, so, yeah. When Ronnie heard, caught wind of that, he was like, you know, he they became buddies. You know, he invited my mom and dad up to a private listening in the recording studio of Dream Evil from front to back, just the two of them, and me and Ronnie. And when he heard that my dad was into photography, every time we were in San Diego, he would give my dad a press pass so he can go into the press pit and take pictures. And one of those photos actually ended up being in an advertisement for a BC Rich ad. <laughs> so you're coming from an abusive home, and I don't know who in the home was abusive, but you're coming from an abusive home, and you still have a relationship with your parents, you end up being able to share some of this success that you've had uh, early on with Ronnie James Dio, who obviously was fairly special in your life. Oh, yeah. He was the voice I turned to, you know, after a beating or, or, or hard times or, you know, anything, you know. You know, even when I had a job, like I was still living in my car, but I had a job. You know, I had a wind-up clock and a liter of bottles of 7-Up filled with water, so I'd wet my hair, shampoo it, and then rinse it on the side of the, in the front seat through the side, the door open, shave in a little cup uh, and, or a, or a bowl in the side view mirror. And then my clothes were in the trunk and I'd get dressed inside the car and then go to work. Did your relationship with Ronnie start, I'm assuming somewhere around the rough cut time because you were in rough cut. And I know that he produced some of the early uh, rough cut demos. Is that where your personal relationship with Ronnie started? Yes, it started at day one. And looking back, you know, now I can connect the dots, you know, but my whole world changed because, first of all, it, I get sad when I think about how it begins because Randy Rhodes passed away. Right. 
And Jakey Lee was in Rough Cut, so he left Rough Cut to join Ozzy. So there was an opening spot in Rough Cut. So there was auditions being held for the, to replace Jake. Now, all these guitar players in L.A. had all their gear, their stage clothes. They had followings from their other bands. Anybody could have just slipped right in. But something about this demo that I made with my last $20, giving lessons, driving you know, house to house, Ronnie goes, we got to get this kid up here. you know. But how do we find a kid who lives in his car? <laughs> right. You know, but they found me. They found me. They rented me gear. They rented me a Marshall stack and cables so that I could do the audition because all I had was a guitar. And I stayed at the apartment of the friend of mine who was passing my demo around that ended up in the hands of Ronnie's the night before. And so the phone rings the night before and he looks at it like the president of the United States just called and he says, okay, okay. Yeah, no problem. Bye. And then he looks over and he goes, dude. Ronnie wants to meet you. He's going to be there tomorrow at your audition. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, yeah. Ronnie wants to meet you. He wants to be there. I'm like, I'm thinking in my world. I'm like, no, I think it's the other way around. It's more like I want to meet him, you know, because yeah, I didn't think he was going to be part of the auditions. I thought that was going to be up to the band. And then, you know, Ronnie had other things to do. He was writing for the Holy Diver album, you know, at the time. So, so I walk in and there's, we're in a recording studio, uh, there's Ronnie and Wendy sitting on the couch, you know, behind the control booth of the console. And then in the isolation room, the large room, is the band. And people are playing guitar and auditioning. And I walk in. And, and before I get in there, I just I just stop dead in my tracks. I'm like, there he is. That's him. You know, and I, I still get chills thinking to this very moment. I mean, I can't believe that I'm about ready to walk. You know, when I cross the threshold between the hallway and that studio, everything's going to change. Right. And I walked in and he gets up and he, you know, instead of sitting down and just, Hey man, you know, you're next. He gets up and walks over and says, don't be so overwhelmed. He goes, I'm, I'm a fan of what you do as well. I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, are you kidding me? You know, the first thing he does is try to put me at ease and tell him and try to make me an equal. How old were you at this point? Probably like 17, wow. 18. Okay. And so I tell him that, uh, you know, that I learned his melody lines on guitar and I often was fooled by, you know, the notes that he sang were so high, but his voice was so thick. It didn't sound like he was singing that high. So I was looking for lower notes and I, I was like, no, it can't possibly be this. It can't possibly be this. And then sure enough, it was that super high note. But when I hear other guys sing that same note, it sounds so thin in, in the, in the stratosphere. But when Ronnie sings it, it just sounds like, you know, like nothing. They're like that. Oh, this is just, you know, this is nothing for him because it's so thick. It doesn't sound like, you know, way up in the stratosphere. Right. And then I go, you know, and I studied your lyrics. You know, it's like, it sounds like you're saying one thing, but you're saying another. And he goes, what do you mean by that? I go, well, you know, it seems like you, you always seem to pick subject matter, you know, that, that has opposite views, you know, and totally conflicting views like black and white. You know, but somehow each person, whether they're on the white side or the black side, you know, not racially meaning, you know, just sure. like it's so it's so different. Right, you know? right, yeah, yeah. So left and right, you know, so le whoever's on the far left and whoever's on the far right thinks that that song is about them. But they love the music so much that when they're in the audience, they're not fighting each other. They're actually unified through the love of the music. But it's got a dark sound, but yet a positive message. And he grabs my arm and he goes, right, right. And little did I know that, you know, that was going to be the beginning of a 30 long year friendship. 
because apparently I had like cracked his code. Like nobody had ever said that to him before. You finally, so, you finally understood the artist, I think. Yeah, and 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 we all know how how great it is to feel understood. I guess he he, he felt misunderstood in that area. I guess. And so it was just this little kid who lived in his car who like, you know, cracked his code. And he was like, I felt like that. I saw this thing on a documentary where this nine-year-old kid cracked a code that echoed all the way up into the White House, you know, because he, it was something that scientists were working on, right. you know, who went to Harvard, you know, that couldn't crack the code. And this little nine-year-old kid cracked the code, you know, and he never sits in on other bands, but he got inspired during the, the audition so here we are. Now we're playing Man on the Silver Mountain and Heaven and Hell together on the very first day I meet him. Wow. And then he comes over to me, you know, cheek to cheek, whisker to whisker, and whispers into my ear, what's the lyrics to the second verse? I'm like, the lover of life. Oh, right. <laughs> I'm the day, I'm the day. Oh, right. Because he was writing lyrics for Holy Diver. And when he works on an album, he, he files all of his old lyrics away so he doesn't repeat himself. Right. And from that day on, that became a thing. Because sometimes he would forget his lyrics and he'd come over. And whispered into my ear, what's the lyrics to the second verse? Oh, yeah. Oh, right, right, right. You know, or if he sang the wrong lyric, he would just kind of wink at me and like, I know, I know. You know, <laughs> I have a picture. I, one of these days I'm going to put it up. It's just you can see the friendship between him and I. Something must have happened during the Dream Evil tour on that particular moment where he's just got the biggest smile on his face. And I've got the biggest smile on my face. And we're looking at each other just laughing. And you can just see that we were just friends, yeah. you know, because when I got the gig for Rough Cut, I'm at his home now. It's just me and him sitting on his couch. And he looks at me and he goes, well, well, kid, he goes, uh, anybody you want to call? <laughs> you know, because he knows I'm just dying inside because I'm sitting next to Ronnie James Dio in his house by himself. You know, it was just it was just a world of wonder from that day on. It sounds like it. I almost uh, wonder if uh, well, maybe. Because Ronnie didn't have kids, did he? He and Wendy didn't have any kids. Yeah, yeah, he did, but it was from a previous marriage. Did he? Yeah. Okay, because I was wondering whether he was almost sort of a surrogate uh, father to you, it sounds like, maybe. Yes. Yeah, because there were times when I'd be up at his house, it'd be late at night, and he'd go get a mattress and put it on the floor and put sheets and pillows and blankets and tuck me in like a father to a child and give me headphones so I could listen to the Holy Diver recordings before they were even finished. Wow. I mean, it sounds like you were sort of almost destined at some point be in Dio, uh, is what it sounds like to me. Yeah, because during the recordings of the Rough Cut demos, we had such a blast, you know, because we had very similar work ethics. You know, there was no such thing as, well, it's getting late, let's start this thing tomorrow. Ronnie was like, you know, tired of always having to say that because he couldn't finish it. You know, but when it was just me and him doing overdubs, it was just like we would go and go and go and go and go, and I would never get tired. So he just loved that, you know, and so he he always loved those, and so did I. Those those moments where it was just me, him, and Angelo in the studio at late night doing all these guitar overdubs, and what took the time was just us sitting together creating it. What about this? No, I'm thinking more like this, and he'd sing me a melody. And, Can you play that? You mean like this? He goes, yeah, but can you do it more like this? And I'm sitting down on the ground, and he's on a chair leaning over to me, and he's singing me melody lines for me to play on guitar. And we're just working together, just having a ball. You know, it's like 3 o'clock in the morning. We never once said, hey, it's getting late. Let's start this tomorrow. We didn't finish until it was done. And so he looks at me one day, and he goes, Goldie, if Vivian ever doesn't work out, you'd be my first choice. 
that's why there were no auditions after Viv was out. I was in, that was it. Cause he and I were such good mm-hmm. friends and we had similar work ethics and he liked the fact that I was very Richie Blackmore oriented and that he liked the rainbow influence that I brought to the Dream Evil album. You know, it was kind of giving back to him what he gave to me in the first place. Yeah, and such a great record that Dream Evil record is. I I mean, you guys work on that record is really good. So let me back up a minute. So you're you're in Rough Cut. Uh, Dio's doing the Dio thing. He's working on the first record. Dio's helping produce these uh, Rough Cut demos. But then you depart at this point for Jafria. Is that accurate? Yeah, I know. It's crazy as it sounds. So how did that all happen? Well, number one, because I see things. Sometimes I wish I could see winning lotteries numbers, but sometimes I see things. And we were doing a concert, and Greg Jafria was trying to put a band together, and he was sitting with a record company. And all he needed was a guitar player because Punky Meadows and him weren't getting along. And so the record company says to Greg, why don't you get that guy? So Greg approaches me after a concert, a rough cut concert, says, hey, I think I've got something you'd be interested in. Here's my phone number. Give me a call. And I said, okay, you know. And I kind of knew about Angel and, and knew about him, but he had a, at the time he had a real bad reputation and um, around town of being kind of flaky and, and mm-hmm. starting projects, not really seeing them through and, you know, things like that. Rough Cut had just gotten a, a record deal on Warner Brothers. So Okay. And Ronnie was still doing stuff with Sabbath at that time. So he would let me live at his house while he was away. And so I called Greg and um, just in case I had a couple of ideas stored up, just in case, which ended up being a song called Don't Turn Me Down at the time. Uh, and just in case we were going to do anything like that. So I went over to his house and I saw back then they used video, you know, uh, VHS. So I see this, this uh, video of David Isley, Greg Jafria, and Punky Meadows doing this song. And I see it. But wow, this is going to be big. It wasn't the music that I loved. I love Journey. So I'm cool with that. I love Foreigner. I love that kind of, you know, commercial rock stuff, you know, lighter stuff. I do like that. It wasn't my favorite thing, but it is stuff that I liked. I thought, this is going to be big. But it meant having to quit Rough Cut, who just got a record deal on Warner Brothers. Now, this means everything because uh, I spent all that time listening to that Burn album, watching that Warner Brothers label go around and around in circles of year and year mm-hmm. after year. Now, I was going to uh-huh. be that guy. I was going to be a guy on that. You know, somebody was going to be sitting you know, and listening to a record, watching the Warner Brothers label go around and around in circles, but it was going to be me this time. Yep. And Ronnie James Dio is a producer, and I had to leave that to join a band with no record deal with a guy who had a bad reputation, and everybody thought I was crazy except Ronnie. So he, Ronnie calls me and he goes, he goes, he goes, Goldie, he goes, don't get upset if, if I'm around the rough cut guys and I have to act like I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> he okay. goes he goes i love you kid and i know why you're doing this you know and you got to go with your gut did he push you one way or the other no he just said if this is what you think you got to do you then do it you know yeah and he goes i'll always be here you know, I'll always be here we'll always be friends i'll always be here for you you know that you know but you know it's gonna be sad you know that this album won't be the same but you know you got to do what you got to do I understand. He goes, I didn't get where I am at right now if I stayed in Rainbow and Black Sabbath. Now, did I? 
I go, no, that's true. He goes, you know, and he was just, and Dio really hadn't become what Dio had become yet, but he knew what sure. he, was, he knew that he was headed for, you know, magnificence because he, he just had magnificence within him and the whole band had magnificence within them. So he knew this was going to happen. So it was just like, wow. You know, and then a year later, we have a hit song, which are free on the top, well into the top 40. We're touring with Deep Purple, my favorite band. I get to meet Richie Blackmore and all the guys in Deep Purple, and Rough Cut gets dropped off the label. Yeah, they didn't get dropped right away, though. They put out the record, but I want to, I want to, you bought it up. So you're in Jafria. You guys are on tour with Deep Purple, and I imagine you're feeling pretty good about your decision because you're about to meet Blackmore. Yep. And, what kind of story do you want to share from that? Because I've read some uh, what I would consider nightmare stories about this tour and the way that Jafria was treated by none other than Mr. Blackmore himself. Well, you got to remember, though, these guys came from the old school, you know, and know. And, and Richie, not, not you, I mean the listeners and those people who believe those stories. That's who I'm talking to. All right. Right. Those who believe those stories, you know, on the surface, they are correct. But there's always another side to every coin. Richie was kind of a prankster, I heard, you know, because I spent a lot of time one-on-one with Ronnie. And he even, we sat and listened to the Jafria record together, just him and I, one-on-one. And then bef- and then he gave me advice what to do and what not to do when you're around Richie Blackmore. <laughs> <laughs> the, the galaxy guide to how to be yeah. around Richie yeah. Blackmore. I yeah. love it. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm okay. Okay. I got it. Got it. You know. All right. See you around, kid. You know. Have a good one. You know. So at the time, I'm trying to do something different. So the David Isley was a really good team player back then, and he would sit on his knees and hold the guitar like a table. So the guitar was sitting flat, and I'd walk over to it and play it like a piano. You know, and then I would do all this stuff where I'd play with one hand and doing stuff on one hand that most people could only do with two hands kind of stuff. You know, I kind of grow a third arm to pat myself on the back with it. Just I worked really hard to try to come up with something, you know, that would put set me aside. So the crowd went crazy and it was 20,000 people, you know, and back then it was the lighters, you know, and it was just a great night. You know, we went to the into the the bar and there was Richie and all the guys and I got a chance to meet everybody and Richie's like man you guys are amazing you're a great player and like whoa this is just I can't believe it we just had the greatest night and all of a sudden three o'clock in the morning we have this emergency meeting that we're kicked off the tour (laughs) 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 and and so the agent and the managers are going okay if Goldie doesn't do his solo you tone down the set a little bit you can stay on the tour so eyes (laughs) were all on me and so I go, yeah, of course. I'm not going to turn down an opportunity like this. I don't have to play my guitar solo. You know, I'm happy to be on this tour. You know, I can wait three months before I do it again. Uh-huh. Like, oh, uh-huh. thank, thank you. You know, so the last night, what are they going to do? They can't kick us off the tour. It's the last night. So I do my solo the last night. Uh-huh. And everybody goes crazy and, and it, it made MTV news. I'll never forget it. I was at my mom and dad's house and I see MTV news come on and they say, you know, Lead guitarist for Jafria, Craig Goldie has legendary guitarist Richie Blackmore shaking in his boots. I was like, what? <laughs> you know, because that was a big thing at the house. Like, you know, you know, they hated me loving Deep Purple and Richie Blackmore. They just hated it. But all of a sudden they hear this. It's like, so little by little, they're starting to get the idea like, well, wait a minute, maybe this kid is good, you know. 
And I'll never forget it, man. I was always the last to leave, and I turned to, turned out to be that Ronnie was the same way. But get into that later if we end up having having time. But so I'm walking one way down the hallway of an empty arena, and Richie's walking the other way towards me in an empty arena in the same hallway. We're walking towards his sister, and he walks over to me and he he kind of mimes the the way I did my one handed thing. And he goes, "You have to show me how you do that," and I just froze. I was like, yeah. wait a minute. All these years that I spent trying to learn Richie Blackmore solos, note for note. Now here's Richie asking me how to do something. Like, this can't be real. So right. I froze and I just said, oh, well, you do this and you do that and blah, 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 and I ran. <laughs> <laughs> and then I got into the dressing room and I thought, you idiot. There was Richie Blackmore asking you how to do something and you couldn't and you ran. So one of the don'ts that Ronnie told me was don't go into Richie's private dressing room. So what do I do? I go knock on the Richie Blackmore's private dressing room door. <laughs> <laughs> and he answers. Yeah. And he just kind of looks at me and I'm like, you know, uh, you know, I've idolized you for years and he rolls his eyes. And I thought, uh oh, I'm in, I'm, i this is why Ronnie didn't want me to do this. You know, I'm about to really have my butt handed to me, you know? Right. And so later did I find out that, you know, the reason why he did that is because every guitar player that he had toured with, he didn't let do solos and stuff. So everybody would come to him and say, you know, I've idolized you for years. And they would say, F you, you prick, you know. And right. so he, that's what he was expecting. So he rolled his eyes like, okay, here it comes, you know, get it over with. And I said, I don't care who does this or that or the other thing. You know, I think you're the best and you always will be. And I go, no hard feelings. And I put my hand out and he shook yeah. it and he goes, come on inside. So now I'm in his private dressing room. I'm getting chills uh -huh. thinking about it. And he plays soccer. So he's got this breakaway guitar in the corner on top of what these, you know, like we're, it, because it's a stadium basically or, or an arena, you know, it's also the same room that the athletes use. So there's these rafters on top where they put their bag and then they have lockers and, you know, and ha hangers and stuff. So he's got this breakaway guitar in the corner on top of these rafters, you know, like about maybe seven or eight feet above, you know, above the ground. And um, he goes, have a go at the top shelf. So I've got this soccer ball. And he goes, give him a beer. So I take a swig of the beer and I put it over on top of the rafters next to me and, and then uh, you know, I try to kick the ball and just kind of bounces, you know, does nothing. And then I go, come on, man, you're, this is Blackmore. And one more time and did it again. You know, he's like, come on, one more time. You know, he's telling me, you know, just one more time. I was like, All right, come on, Goldie, you can do this. You got to do this. So I concentrate really hard and I kick the ball and it goes dead center and breaks the guitar and everybody's clapping and yay, you know, and Richie's congratulating me, you know, and, Meanwhile, the ball is rolling towards my beer and knocks the beer and sprays over, sprays it all over the room, you know, and, and Richie's all, no, no, don't worry about it. It happens to me all the time. Get him another beer. And so we start talking and, and I'm just telling him how much time I spent learning all of his solos and he tried to trip me up and, and I, I would have to say, no, that's not the right title. It's actually this title. Oh, right, 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 right. And then I'm the, and I'm saying, and then I was learning and this song, da 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 da, da and, I, and you were doing this and that. And he's like, oh, you mean such and such? I go, no, no, it's actually this song. He goes, oh, right, 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 right. And it just was like, and he was just a gentleman. He ended up giving me a really great compliment and, and, and then giving me his home phone number and saying, keep in touch. Wow. 
Yeah, that's I, I mean, that is there are bits and pieces of what I read, but uh, none of that. I mean, basically, I read the no guitar solos thing. I read they cut your set time from like 45 minutes to 25 minutes or something like that. Well, that's an exaggeration. I mean, because, the, yeah, I mean, the, there's a contract that they have with the promoters and the venues that each act has a certain amount of time that has to be filled. Otherwise, you know, I'll tell you one thing, Greg and Dave love to exaggerate. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, you know, there's a little bit of truth to everything. Yeah. We didn't have very much room on stage and sometimes they would mess with them, but a lot of it was because, you know, they would fight back. Right. You know, you don't fight back because it just makes it worse. Yeah. Okay. You don't start, you know, having an attitude with people and, and telling things, saying things in the press and bad mouthing your, bad mouthing Deep Purple. You know, it's just going to make it worse. You know, you, yeah. you're not going to win. Just say, hey, I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So from your viewpoint, the uh, the situation and the experience uh, and being able to meet Blackmore and your time getting to spend with Richie, everything was positive from your viewpoint. Well, because I had the right attitude. I, I didn't expect to have the optimum situation right away. Greg did because he was already a rock star. You know, and David Glenn Isley expected to have the optimum situation because Greg expected to have the optimum situation, you know, and right. Blackmore is looking at us like, you know, who do these guys think they are? You know, they're the opening act. Yeah. You should be happy to be here. Oh, really? Oh, you don't like that? Well, if you don't like that, you just wait. <laughs> yeah. You know, okay. they brought it on themselves, you know, these guys yeah. are gentlemen. And if you meet the guys from Black Sabbath or any of those guys that came from that era, they're all gentlemen, all the British guys, all the British rock bands and heavy metal bands. They came from an era where, you know, you had yes and please and thank you and no, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. You know, uh, right. you know, I mean, it's just it just was it, it was. It's kind of happening now today with the new kids, you know, how they, the way they're getting brought up they're, They expect the optimum situation and they don't have to work for it. Yeah. Kind of a, a sense of entitlement, if you will. Exactly. That's what brought trouble on them. Right. Okay. If you give them, you know, all they were looking for was the proper respect. I mean, John Lord came in the first night, introduced himself and said, Hey, let's have a great time together, guys. And I was just so blown away, you know, and I, I had a, I got a chance to meet him and tell him, how much, you know, his music meant to me and, you know, and it was great. Roger Glover, same thing, you know, but you know, you know how the guitar players and singers back in those days, they're the special guys, you know, and it caused like a mystique, you know, and I get it, you know, I didn't expect Blackmore and Ian Gillen to come in and say, introduce themselves and say, hi guys, let's have a great time together. No, you know, I expect them to be all mysterious and, you know, probably having a seance or something or some weird thing to make them, you know, keep the mystique going. Yeah. But, you know, it was just, you knew you were, you were with a gentleman, royalty. You know, you don't treat royalty with a sense of entitlement, like you put it. Yeah. I think I understand uh, your viewpoint on that. So, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you weren't in Jafria for a terribly long time, right? You got the first record out, you spent a little bit of time on the road, but eventually you parted Jafria to finally wind up in Dio. Is that the right time frame? Yeah, because actually, once again, I kind of saw things. When, when Ronnie flew me in to do the Worst Stars that hearing aid thing, uh, Rudy Sarzo and Tommy Aldridge had just left Ozzy Osbourne, and so um, they were looking for a guitar player. And so, little by little, you know, 
things worked out to where I had the opportunity to become the guitar player for Rudy Sarzo and Tommy Aldridge's new band right mm -hmm. after they left Ozzy Osbourne. So that was so much closer to the music that I really loved. And um, Greg had gotten such a big head because we had a hit song and a hit tour, you know, and we you know, with Deep Purple and Foreigner that uh, he started badmouthing the record company and, you know, David Isley actually said, you know, hey, we need to bring Goldie in on some of these songwriting sessions. You know, he's got some really good ideas. And Greg was like, you know, hit the roof, you know, like, hey, man. According to Dave, you know, Greg had said something like, you know, I'm the one who made this happen. I'm this and I'm that. And he goes, David said something like, you know, dude, you're not God. You know, and he says, I am God. You know, something kind of like that kind of a interaction, you know, um, so when I caught wind of that, I was like thinking, wow, you know, this is, uh, this, it was just really an eye-opening experience for me because I was just so, you know, I was just like, and still am basically pure-hearted, you know, and I think that's what Ronnie liked about me too because he was pure-hearted. You know, he had love for his fans. He was, he did it for the pure enjoyment of creation, not to be a rock star, not to be worshipped. You know, that kind of thing. And these guys had, you know, everybody had their hidden agendas. The guys in Rough Cut had hidden agendas. The guys in Jafria had hidden agendas. And then all of a sudden, Tommy, Tommy Aldridge and Rudy Sarzo, you know, come along. And they're like totally different. Right. Team players, to, you know, me and Tommy, I just loved that guy. He was so funny. After every rehearsal, we ended up playing video games together at Rudy's house, you know, and he was just so funny. And, but we, those guys were such, good people, no hidden agendas, no, hey, it's got to be me, it's mine, my band, my band, my band, you know, and it was really cool. Is that what you mean when you talk about hidden agendas, like, uh, you know, people trying to get their songs on the record or people trying to take ownership of the band, that kind of thing? Is that what exactly. you're... Exactly, exactly. Okay. And the project with um, with Rudy and Tommy that that's what eventually became Driver with uh, Tony McAlpine, correct? That's correct. Yeah, okay. not the material, but just that's what I mean. Because even then, I mean, those guys are such they could have, and I would have been more than happy, you know. But Tony McAlpine didn't need my material, you know, the stuff that I wrote with them they could have used. But I mean, even then, they could have turned around. And used all the music that we already had written and just called it something else. But they didn't. They started all over from scratch. Right. And it was a totally different project. It was it, it, none of the stuff that we had worked on for a year and a half was on that record with Tony McAlpine. And it was just one of those things where it's just like I, we got a record deal offered to do an album. And all of a sudden I get the phone. I get the call. You know, Ronnie wants you to join the band. It was like, oh, my God. You know, there's just. You know, how do you say no to that? You know, even though this was really a great opportunity for me to be in a band with Rudy Sarzo and Tommy Aldridge and the singers that we were working with and the record company guys we were had, you know, it was just like, wow, you know, this is, it was, it was hard. You know, it was easy, but hard because I loved those guys and I loved the music we were playing, but there's no way I'm going to say, no, I don't want to be in Ronnie James Dio's band, you know? Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, you were waiting on that situation and it finally showed itself. It sounds like. Well, dreaming for that and wishing, not yeah. waiting, you know, because Ronnie yeah. did say that, but that didn't mean that, you know, that, that, that all that meant a... was if Vivian ever didn't work out, I'd be his first choice. That didn't mean that someday 
when Vivian doesn't work out, you'll be my first choice. He yeah. didn't put it in those terms. Right. And you kind of reminded me of something which I'd sort of forgotten about, which is you were involved in that hearing aid thing. What do you remember from that? Was it just a single day uh, that that yes. whole thing well, took place? Well, for me, place? I think it was over a few days, but for me, it was just one day because I was on tour. What do you remember from that? Was there any, anything uh, out of that day that kind of bought the fanboy out of you? Um, oh, any of good course. stories yeah, from that absolutely. day? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's Neil Sean, there's George Lynch, there's Yngwie Malmsteen, there's all these, and just everybody. And the right. cool thing was is that Ronnie was such a nice man and, and, and so gracious that it just spilled into everybody else's attitude. All the guys from Motley Crue, you know, they were known for being partiers, you know, and and everybody, whoever was known for being kind of a jackass or a partier or, a you know, the typical rock star, they suddenly became a gentleman when they walked through those doors. Wow. For their love for Ronnie. That's interesting because you even got to reunite with uh, your uh, former bandmates in Rough Cut. They were part of that as well. Yeah, yeah. And Ronnie brought me in to be the first. I had to go first over all those guys. I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, because he knew that I would come up with a theme first and not just start you know, noodling around. And he did that thing again. That, that's right. That's right. You know, he grabbed my arm, you know, he goes, that's why I brought you in first. That's why I knew, because I knew you'd start with a theme and not just noodle around like everybody else. That's great. That's great. You know, I'm like, what? So I'm all, okay. You know, and, and, but one of the things I remember most was, uh, it's on camera for, in the documentary. Um, uh -huh. George, George Lynch is just kind of noodling around, uh, practicing, getting ready to do something. I'm behind the camera. And I hear him do something that sounds like he's playing on a wawa pedal. And I look down, fully expecting to see a wawa pedal on the floor, and there was none. I'm looking up to him. I'm like, how the heck is he doing that? And it scared me. It was like, oh, man, now i got to go home and practice. But it, it led me to the things that I didn't know how to do, you know, which was what I now call vowel sounds. Uh -huh. Not being able to being – because most guitar players use only consonants, like – yeah, mostly consonants like k, d, uh -huh. ch, you know, that kind of thing, but not ah. Are you talking then, about the phrasing of the guitar? The way you make your guitar sound. Uh-huh. You know, there's a way to get a vowel sound, like an ah in your solo, or an okay. open up. And even in rhythms, I, I apply that now to get a certain type of a of an attack on one note versus the other note. You know, if I want to make one note stand out, I know how to make it have a vowel sound. If you speak in only consonants, you're not going to have very much to say without any vowels. Wow, that's interesting. I've never heard it put that way. Okay, very cool. And But it was because I got so scared by George Lynch. You know, no wonder that, you know, Mr. Scary. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that song, I guess, uh, I guess that was maybe, yeah. maybe it was about him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. So so each guitar player pushed each of the other guitar players a little bit then, it sounds like? Yeah, yeah because, because plus everybody was there for a cause, you know. Yeah. And, you know, Yngwie Malmsteen was great. I mean, uh, and then everybody had a go at the end, you know, for the ad-libs. But Neil Sean, I mean, come on, man. He's the king of that stuff, just making that guitar sing for the end bits, you know. Right. And, and he, and he was, you know, even kind of pulled out some stuff from the old days, you know, cause I remember my first concert was Santana and I, oh, I love cool. Santana cause we used to play Europa in a cover band. 
Uh-huh. And when I went to Santana, I kept thinking to myself, who's that other guy? You know, I mean, I love Carlos. God bless you, Carlos. But who's that other guy? Man, he's really gone someplace. Sure enough, it was Neil Shum. Yeah, he went some places, all right. <laughs> yeah, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's so cool. It was just like, almost like a, a high school reunion and a family reunion mixed together, you know, because everybody yeah. was... You know, I was learning still, but those guys, you know, all those people who had graduated, you know, and gone on to great things because they learned and had their act together, you know, well, far and beyond what I could do, you know, so I was kind of right in the middle, you know, I, was, I, I had done some good stuff in Jafria, I'd done some good stuff on the Rough Cut Records and, you know, but I really hadn't done anything to speak of and that I could stand up and say, yeah, i I belong in the same room as them. Right. I didn't b- belong in the same room as them at that point, but Ronnie put me there because, you know, as far as he was concerned, you know, he knew that I would learn from it. I would do what he wanted me to do to get things started. Once you joined Dio's band on the surface, it seems like you would basically be in the perfect situation because you and Ronnie had this, this past relationship already so now right. you're in the now you're in the band and you put out this amazing album, Dream Evil, great record. Thanks. But then you're gone. You would come back, but you've had like all these different stints in Dio. What was the reasoning behind a lot of that? And in your eyes, how did the landscape change within the band each time you, you left and you returned? <laughs> That's a very good question about landscape. That's I've never had it put that way before because when I first joined Dio, Ronnie said that, you know, Craig has revitalized this band because a lot of the guys were kind of disenchanted. At some point, I'll say why I left the first time. It needs to be told the right way. Not that okay. you would not put it the right way because it's a podcast, you know, but I mean, it's just that it needs to be put the right way. I know what I did right and I know what I did wrong and I know what Ronnie did right and I know what Ronnie did wrong. And when I rejoined the band, we even talked about that, you know. You know, it's not going to be taking pot shots at a guy who can't defend himself while in in the grave. You know, it's not about that. There were certain circumstances surrounding that reason why I left that are kind of personal and kind of need to be told a certain way. But the other ones, basically because Ronnie's a good man, he understood that sometimes there's just family members, you know, uh, needed me or something was going on in the family that I needed to be there for them. And Ronnie's from that same kind of school that if you're on the album, you do the tour. You don't do the album and not the tour. Right. So if I can't do both, then, you know, he has to get somebody else. Uh, there was a time when I remember, um, when we, when I came back the first time we did magic together, that was just, you know, sorry, magical days. I mean, that was just unbelievable. That was the totally different because Jimmy was back too. Right. And uh, so there was just this whole thing like, you know, forgive and forget kind of thing. Jimmy had different reasons than I did, you know, but and, you know, and everybody can say what they want to say. But, you know, they still went back. I mean, Vinny went back, <laughs> you know, you know, Vinny went and, and they were doing heaven and hell together. You know, I mean, everybody can say what they want to say. But, you know, it's funny how, you know, Dio was at the top of their resume. A lot of times, you know, like there was just certain things. I remember one time I woke up one day and my hand was making these crunching noises. And I was like, oh, my God, what is going on? And it scared me because we were on tour. And so the first thing I thought of was, okay, I'm just going to put it under some warm water. 
that made it worse. I had to put my hand in ice water to make it go away. Wow. And at some point, you know, playing the, the riff to We Rock was difficult because of that. And I was like, oh, my God, I heard about stuff like this, that after a while, you know, you if you're like tendonitis or whatever or whatever that thing yeah. is, you know, I thought, you know, I'd heard about things like this. I thought, oh, man, is this happening to me? So they brought Doug Aldridge in because I wasn't going to be able to do the tour. We were touring prior to Killing the Dragon, but we were also riding for Killing the Dragon. And I was already recording Killing the Dragon when this all started. And then there was a couple other family issues going on and that going on. So they brought Doug in because he could do the tour, do the album and the tour. And he did amazing job. But, you know, Wendy would call from time to time, like, we're not giving up on you, kid. How's, how you doing? You know, I went and got an x-ray, nothing. Couldn't figure out what the heck was going on. And then Rudy said to me one day, he goes, you know, it might be a potassium deficiency. He goes, maybe you should eat more bananas and drink more Gatorade and take some potassium. And I thought, it can't possibly be that simple. You know, but Rudy's a smart guy, you know. Uh-huh. And so I wasn't going to dismiss it, but I thought it can't be that simple. And sure enough, that's what it was. It was a potassium deficiency. Wow. That's good to know. <laughs> yeah. And then all of a sudden, boom, I'm back. And it's like, okay, come on. So master the moon, <laughs> you know. <laughs> that's a trip. Just yeah. something slight like that. And the, and the doctors couldn't even tell you that. That's what's scary. <laughs> I know, isn't that? I mean, come on. A doctor could, of course, a doctor is not going to say, "Hey, dude, if you just you know, eat some bananas, take some potassium pills, and drink more Gatorade, you're going to be good." Of course, they're going to want to you know, rack up the bills with X-rays yeah. and tests and stuff. You know, it's just crazy. But God bless Rudy. You know, for his, you know, he does a lot of research on a lot of things. You know, and uh, you know, if, had he not said that, who knows what would have happened. Yeah, and I can only imagine how scary that has to be for somebody that makes their career with their hands. You know, yeah. I, I can, I just can't even imagine that was light. Um, well, dang, that's crazy. Let's move on and talk a little bit about Resurrection Kings um, because Resurrection Kings has some similarities for me to, you know, I mean, call it a super group, whatever. It's it's sort of. Uh, winery dogs, anything else, you know, you want to put it in the same category. But was it a project or was it a band? Uh, both, you know, because we did tour and we're actually negotiating for another album. We're going to be doing a, a Resurrection Kings 2 album soon. Okay, so there there were actual live dates performed then with Resurrection yes. Kings. Yes, okay. yes, yes. Uh, I couldn't find a whole lot out there uh, about it. I just, you know, I, I dug it up when I was doing the research. I knew about some of the stuff, uh, but I, I couldn't find anything from a live standpoint or anything like that. So, uh, and that was Ch- uh, Chaz West, uh, Sean McNabb, and, and Vinny, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Listen, if you got any of those guys that can probably uh, make anything successful, so I imagine the four of you guys together was uh, quite good. It was a it was a great time because um, it was my first time back doing something. You know, that's why I didn't mind where I didn't write the whole album or anything because I was still coming back from being destroyed by the passing of Ronnie, and um, so. I wrote a couple of, about, I think it was about four songs on that record that I co-wrote on that. And the other stuff was written by other guys. And, and I was cool with that because what did happen was earlier on, I had mentioned that I can draw 
and paint and stuff that they gave me the freedom to record my guitars just however way I wanted to. And so I got a chance to paint with my guitar for the very first time. Uh So on that album, there's all sorts of little things that are going on that just seem like no big deal. But at one point, there's like 16 guitars going on at one time, sometimes 29 guitars going on at one time, creating a, a, a specific texture and then sometimes, you know, one thing is going off in the distance or there's different octaves going on on a riff that has chords. Or I'm playing in several different octaves for one thing. And there's all sorts of stuff in there. There's all sorts of textures that you wouldn't really normally pick up on right away. It's just, but you'd know it if it wasn't there. <laughs> right. And so that was, that really kind of opened up a new world for me because I, Ronnie's network kind of, reached far and wide so i got a chance to sit in on some sessions with guys like who produced and engineered john lennon led zeppelin pink floyd and and Jimi hendrix yeah. so i got a chance and then i got you know of course i got to see how ronnie and angelo used unorthodox methods to get their sound that they got so i was able to kind of utilize everything that i had learned you know as far as techniques and what i've been wanting to try as far as how i would record my guitars and so that was the first time I got a chance to do that. Besides my first solo record, that Hidden in Plain Sight, I got a chance a little bit to do that. That's probably the only solo album really to. I did three, and there's a, there's some good music, but it's just unfortunate the record company. Uh, I wanted to mix in an actual studio, and that they thought the demos were good and. I think it was just a matter of a budget thing. But the first album was actually recorded and mixed in an actual studio. And that's why it sounds the way it does. The music with the ritual stuff, not the David Glenn stuff. That's the stuff that kind of was more along the lines of what I'm kind of all about as a guitar player. The stuff with ritual? Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. called Craig, Craig Goldie's Ritual Hidden in Plain Sight. But that's when I kind of touched on being able to record the guitars the way I want to. But. Okay. The Resurrection Kings, you know, I was just left completely alone. I was my own engineer. Right. And I had 24-hour access to my own gear <laughs> and my own equipment. And so I just kind of had a chance to goof around and not goof around, but do the things that, that most people would tell me no. It's too either too time-consuming or they don't see it as being necessary, where I thought it was. And so there there were times when... That's how me and Alessandro Del Vecchio became such good friends because we were mixing the album together. And he was like, oh my God. He goes, what did you do here? He goes, just like the 29 guitar tracks. You know, and I go, I know, just, but I would send him an MP3 first on how it would sound. Then he would be like, and so we would work together on how we would piece it together. And it was a trip. Yeah. And David Glenn Isley, I think you uh, reunited with him for uh, some of the Craig Goldie's ritual, correct? Well, it was just what Frontiers did is they wanted us to do an album based on kind of like how the first Jeffrey record was. Uh-huh. So, so that's what we did, you know. And there was there's probably about four, you know, good songs on there and one real special solo on that song called Believe in One Another. But I think it's like No More Prayers in the Dark, Life If Only a Memory, Wings of a Hurricane, and Don't Belong Here Anymore. But... um we managed to do what they asked us to do, you know. Yeah. But were you happy with the outcome? Well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, that's another thing where I really don't like to, you know, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. I just was expecting one thing and got another and ended up, you know, I 
I don't like to have to fight and argue, you know, to get something to be done better, you know, and it just blew my mind that, you know, I would have to fight and argue to get something done better. And even that wasn't as good as it should be. And then it turn around and have it copyrighted with, without my name on it. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, wow. All right, whatever. So Wow. So the Dio Disciples, you talked about your relationship with Ronnie, obviously very special, but the Dio Disciples seems like a very special way to kind of celebrate Ronnie's life. Can you talk about some of the earliest gigs once Dio Disciples came together? Were those gigs super emotional for you? Oh, yeah, they, and they always are. Because to me, in my heart, it's it's a memorial service in the form of a rock concert. That's a cool way of putting it. My favorite part about it is that going out under the crowd afterwards, you know, because playing those songs are just, you know, the whole time, every chord, every note, everything matters. And when the band is on, it's just really amazing because we were Ronnie's band. We weren't the original guys, but it doesn't matter because we were the guys that he picked, you know, to stick with that long before his passing. And we had a very, all, each and every one of us had a very close relationship with him. That band was run as a family. And so we lost a family member, not a band member. Right. And his fans were his family too. So he had, you know, a global family in loss. So as we went from city to city and country to country, I tried to play my best, you know, interpretation of those songs on stage with a storm inside because of what those songs meant to me. <laughs> but afterwards, going out and talking to the to the crowd and trying to keep Ronnie's way alive, because he had a way of, you know, he wouldn't do paid meet and greets. He wouldn't stand by the merch table to try to sell t-shirts. You know, he just would go out to the crowd or he would have all, everybody in a certain room where he can go just talk to everybody. You know, he would look you in the eye, make you feel like the only one in the room that mattered. And you could feel the love and respect that he had for you and treat you like an equal and remember your name, you know, you know, year after year after year. And Hey, did your brother ever get that job? And Hey, how's Sally? You know, did she, you know, did she ever get her, her dog taken care of and I mean all that kind of stuff you know right and they would walk away with a memory that they would treasure in their hearts for the rest of their lives you know yeah. and because he was such a special man so that's my favorite part about it is being able to do that you know because once in a while there'll be those moments where you can tell that they miss Ronnie so much that they feel like I'm the closest thing they have to him uh-huh and so when I'm talking to them and treating them the way Ronnie would, it becomes a really special connection for them. It's almost like they get a chance to reconnect to him in a way, you know, on this earth rather than right. just listening to his records, you know, by themselves at home. It's just hard to explain, you know, because I, I am a fan and I know what it's like to miss Ronnie as a fan. And I know what it's like to miss Ronnie as a band member. And I know what it's like to miss Ronnie as a friend. And I know what it's like to miss Ronnie as a family member, you know, so I, I have all those inside me. So whoever I contact, you know, I know how to reach. Right. Yeah. I, I wonder, um, if he were alive today, how he would view like kind of social media, uh, as it is today, simply because 
you know, it has its good and its bad points. Uh, good points is it kind of puts you closer to your fans and allows you maybe sort of some sort of a doorway to communicate with your fans, which I would kind of see him liking, you know, but yeah, I mean, I'm sure that he would do it in a, in, in his own special way, you know, cause I remember when I lived at his house, he would move me into his house when we would do albums together. So we had 24 hour access to each other and, uh, there he would be on, on the computer answering emails from his fans, you know, yeah, Old letters, you know, yeah, that's very cool. So we have a lot of friends you do as well, I'm sure. But, uh, my co-host and I, we talk about this often. We have a lot of friends that will never be, you know, fortunate enough to see Ronnie James Dio live or Prince live or Jimi Hendrix or any of the greats over the years, uh, that we've lost, we, you know, we just have all these friends that will never be fortunate enough in the next generation the same. What is your viewpoint? And I'm not really necessarily asking you to pick a side. I'm just asking for your viewpoint on where the future of these holograms is going to go. Is it a good thing? Is there a future? Will it progress? Uh, because I could see both sides of it and I can kind of see where it would give people who aren't fortunate enough to have seen these people the opportunity to to experience it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, because Ronnie during the Sacred Heart tour kind of created a hologram of himself with the crystal ball as it would come down, you know. Yeah, I remember that. With the rear projection, you know, and he was always into that stuff, you know. When he was still with us and Rudy was doing 3D animation, he was doing stuff with Ronnie with green screen and stuff, you know. And there was an opening for the, when, when it was the, I think it was the 30 year anniversary or the 25 year anniversary of Holy Diver. We toured that with Rudy and some of the visuals we used was actually Rudy's own 3D animation. And some of it had Ronnie on a green screen. And, you know, he was definitely into technology, but at the same time, you know, he would have done it with a proper balance. Um, but I'm sure that, you know, he would have, he probably would have loved to have been, what he, if he was still with us, the holograms would probably be the dragon. You know, we would probably do like a thing, like a, a tour where, you know, the, the metal, you know, the big giant metal spider and the dragon and all that stuff, you know, bring, bring, bring those things back, but without having to bring, you know, eight semis, he would probably get into hologram stuff. You know, he might, you know, I'm sure that, that, he was a visionary, period. So, and, and visionaries are often what's next, what's coming into the future that he often would create something now that eventually would be the future later. So as far as I'm concerned, as a fan, you know, old footage of Jimi Hendrix is great, but if you could turn that into a, like a really cool looking hologram, you yeah. know, they're talking about doing stuff where they have like, you know, famous, drummers and bass players and singers play with a hologram of Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. I think that would be cool. Create your own all-star band. <laughs> well, no, well, just that, you know, sometimes old footage is old footage and it, and it sure. looks like old footage. And, you know, I'll never forget when we were, when we went out and did this, the, the last hologram tour, the coolest thing besides going out on the crowd was I saw a man with gray hair, standing behind another man who could only be his son with his hands on his shoulders 
with an, a kid that couldn't have been more than like 12 standing in front of the other man with his, with his hand on his shoulders. So it was son, father, grandfather uh-huh. watching the concert. And the grandfather was there for a completely different reason than the father was there. But the son was there because, you know, he was just like, oh, my God, this is like, you know, Xbox come to life, you know, with a rock band. You know, this is cool, you know. Right. But at the same time, they loved it because, thank God for Guitar Hero, you know, they had Holy Diver and they had Crazy Train and all these 80s-based music. You know, I think a lot of that 80s-based music being come back to the global marketplace again had a lot to do with Guitar Hero because the young kids started, got introduced to this 80s-based music just in their world accidentally. They happened, they, it wasn't forced on them. This is the first time probably in history ever that children and parents listen to the same music. I, I think that you're uh, 150% right. In fact, my co-host and I got off on a tangent several weeks back, but he has four kids and, um, uh, you know, he struggles with it all the time because he and I grew up on uh, the rock and roll that, uh, the you know, you love as well as we love, right? The Dio, the Sabbath, the Blackmores, Deep Purple, all that stuff. We grew up on that stuff and we love it. But where is the next generation of rock and rollers going to come from? And uh, he he hit the nail on the head. He said, look, I had MTV when I was growing up. And so some of that rock and roll was was available through MTV. My kids don't have MTV anymore. MTV's gone. But they're getting connected with him through Guitar Hero. So I think you're 150 percent right on that. Yeah, there's that. And then there's, you know, just all the new technology. You know, and it's, it's just, it's just has to be done with the proper balance. And I, I, you know, and some will and some won't, you know, because, you know, we're humans, you know, some people will just be completely disrespectful and, and disregard just for the greed and what, and see how far they can take it, whether they should even take it that far or not. It doesn't matter to them because they just want to push the envelope because they want to be the first to, to do something that nobody else did or, you know, how things go. It's like, me and my girlfriend were just talking about that today. I mean, yesterday that, you know, people on YouTube will, you know, they see a girl or a guy do something disgusting and they get like a million mm-hmm. views. And so somebody has to outdo them to get two million yeah. views. And, you know, little by little, you know, we're crossing the threshold of what is and what is not acceptable. And, you know, but someone somewhere, you know, there's always those people, you know, thank God there's still going to be people who, will have a proper balance, you know, and that's why I'm hoping that this dream child kind of thing is like, uh, like a spearhead for that, you know, to keeping the, you know, bringing the good old days back, not only just the sound, but how we write songs and how we approach songs and how we treat the band, the fans. And, and each band member is not just high, high caliber talent, but they're high caliber people, you know, everything, you know, that, cause that was a very special era, you know, because when the bands were amazing musicians but they were also really cool people and trying to get five to six guys like that to be in the same band longer than a year was really a difficult proposition no doubt and that's a and that's a that's a great segue because i i know uh that we've talked about a lot of stuff and you've done a lot of stuff but uh i'm excited about this dream child record that just released i've literally had two days to spend with this album when it came out on friday so far i'm loving it i mean i've gone through 
I've gone through it a couple of times. So let's talk about Dream Child, which is this record that uh, was just released until Death Do We Meet Again on Frontiers Records. What's the plan? Because do you, Rudy, Simon, and Diego, do you guys have enough time to do a proper tour and festivals and things like that? Well, we're hoping to, you know, just, you know, that, that, see, that also goes hand in hand with how things are going too. You know, it's that, uh, first we need to restore balance, but before that we need to be able to get everybody's schedule together and sync because we do all have to do 10 different things just to make, you know, the equivalency is what we used to be able to make as one. We we were all paid as sidemen back in the eighties. You know, we didn't come from the equal share groups like the Motley Crews and the, and the Van Halen's and the, you know, the Aerosmiths, you know, those guys were millionaires. So a lot of people think, oh, yeah, it's pretty, you know, who, who cares about them? You know, I can steal their music. I can listen to it for free. They're millionaires. Well, not all of us got a chance. You know, this was supposed to be our time not to, you know, get greedy. We paid our dues and this was supposed to be our time, you know, to be able to get the lion's share, to be able not have to worry about, you know, where's our next meal coming from? Where's, you know, are we going to be able to pay rent right. this month? And now our music's getting stolen. And so we have to tour. And the only way to do tours sometimes is to do, is have 10 different projects going on in order to keep money coming in every month. So the same people who are saying, you know, hey, oh, here comes another super group. Oh, yeah, you know, can't commit to one band, you know. Well, the reason why is because you guys are stealing our music. Yeah, no, I'm, <laughs> I, I fully understand uh, uh, why the landscape of music is what it is today. I mean, the George Lynch's and the Michael Sweets and, and, you know, insert name here because – that is what is happening today is is you guys and and I'm fully aware that you guys your financial situations you you didn't you know even if you did make a bunch of money at one point in time back in the 80s uh, you know, it only lasts for so long, but you got to keep working. And the only way to do it now is to be on, you know, 10 different projects. So I, I get it. Well, thank you for that. And, and you know, and, and at the same time, I, I also understand why, you know, because, you know, I understand like, you know, for, for me as a fan, I bought all the Deep Purple yeah. records. I bought all the Rainbow records on vinyl and CD. And as I move from place to place, some of those have gone missing. So I do feel entitled to listen to that stuff for free on YouTube because I already bought it <laughs> twice. Yeah. You know, I get yeah. that, you know, and I understand how, you know, people got tired of paying forking over $15, you know, and getting only two or yeah. three good songs. Totally get that. I understand how the previews, song previews on iTunes could be misleading, kind of like, Movie previews can be misleading. You go to see the movie and you find out it sucked and the only good scenes in the movie were in the previews. (laughs) You know, I get it, you know, but, and now bands are charging $250 for nosebleed seats and $1,000 for meet and greets. You know, it's like, wait a minute, you know, so, you know, we got to restore balance. And so in a way, you know, because of the way I've treated the fans and how I've carried myself over the years, I'm hoping that people understand my heart. And the reason behind what I'm doing is that it's a very difficult proposition now to get the best musicians in the world to give their best ideas and their best performances only to have it stolen. But I did because I said, I'll do it because I still believe we're living in a, if you build it, don't come era. And I still believe in people, you know, but there's a, there's a, there's a quote in the Bible that's very apropos to this. It says, you can't change the city until you change the hearts of the people in the city. Right. 
So right now, you know, the way the music industry is, that's the city. And a lot of people stop at, well, you just can't change the city. It is what it is, and this is just the way it is. No. We all together can change the hearts of the people in the city and restore balance again. I'm not trying to ask people to make, you know, make me a millionaire so I can sit on a mansion on a hill with a gold-plated toilet seat and smoke pot through, I don't smoke pot by the way, but, you know, smoke pot through, you know, you know, through, you know, hundred dollar bills or wipe my butt with hundred dollar bills. You, you know, just not, want to make a living. You know, it's money's yeah. a tool. Well, money's a tool because I remember when I was in rough cut, Ronnie handed me an envelope with an address and said, I want you to go hand deliver this. And it was in the hardest part to park in Hollywood and the worst part in Hollywood. But I found, finally found parking. I had to walk about a mile away. And then found the place, knocked on the door, and the person answered, matched the person who was name was on the envelope, and I handed it to him. Turned out to be a rent check. Ronnie helped him pay their rent that month. Wow! Because he heard about a fan who was having trouble, and but he's all like, "Shh, don't tell everybody, you know, because if they find out, you know, everybody's gonna want me to pay their right. rent, <laughs> you know." And but you know, and everybody flocks to Los Angeles to become a star, but a lot of kids got hooked up in prostitution sure. and drugs. And so there was a charity that was re- rescuing these kids, but they needed a shelter. So Ronnie did a string of concerts that uh, to build them a shelter. Uh, he didn't hike up the ticket prices for the 18-foot fire-breathing dragon. For the same price, you went to go see Motley Crue or Poison. It was the same price you can go see a Dio concert. But a Dio concert bought you a fire, 18-foot fire-breathing dragon and lasers. Yeah, out buddy. Of the Explosion. <laughs> Wonder, you know. But then at the same time, you know, he did a string of concerts where all the proceeds went to this charity to build them a shelter. And that shelter was a complex where they had counselors to help people get off drugs, counselors to figure out why they got on drugs in the first place. They could get their GED. They can get a college degree, a master's degree, a bachelor's degree. Uh, There was like a 10 or 15 year reunion we went to once. There was a before picture of a kid who pissed his pants because he was so high they didn't even realize he had to go. And now he's like a five-star general of the United States Army. Wow. So it can be that simple. It could be just a matter of putting out quality music, or you can change people's lives. That's the kind of stuff that Ronnie did. That's when the balance between band and fans was at its yeah. best. Uh, yeah. And so I'm hoping to restore balance again. You know, I, you know, I'm not asking you to make me a millionaire. I'm just saying I'm tired of struggling. You know, I work 24-7 practically, and I have like maybe one or two days off every couple of months you know otherwise i'm 24 7 and i'm tired of it i don't want to struggle just to get by anymore you know but at the same time i can't give them a bunch of crap and expect to pay for it if you like the song pay 99 cents for it dear lord you know (laughs) if you like the song pay a dollar 29 for it you know it's just ridiculous Yeah, i mean my my approach to music these days is a different approach than what it used to be back in the day. Back in the day, of course, you bought everything that came out that you were into, and that's what it was. Nowadays, my approach to music is I go, I listen to things, I'll stream things, I'll listen to them, but then I'll go buy the actual download. If I like it, I'll go buy the yeah, there's nothing wrong actual with that. download. I mean, to me, that's the wave of the future. It's convenient, and if I'm traveling, I can take it with me, and that's how yeah. I do. But I, but I put this podcast together to urge people 
and to turn people on to not only music they missed back in the 80s or the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, but also to be able to turn people on to new stuff and say, listen, here's yeah. here's what this person is all about. Here's what this music is all about. If you like it, go support it. Go buy it. Here's the link. We put the link in the show notes. Click on the link and go buy it. Oh, that's cool. I mean, that's, you yeah, know, that's we cool. urge people yeah. because we get it. We understand uh, everybody's just trying to make a living. You work very hard at writing yep. music and it's great if it gets you out there on the road because then that just gives us the fans the opportunity to see it live. I mean, we're huge live fans, right. you know. I'll pay a ticket to go see Dream Dream Child. I'll I'll pay the price of a ticket to go see Dream Child, you know, because I like what I heard on the album, you know. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, that's what we're going to try to do. I mean, because of this new age we live in, you know, we we're going to try to sync up our schedules and try to try to do some touring it might be sporadic like the resurrection kings things but at least we did do uh, you know we the resurrection kings must have done at least i don't know 20 concerts you know but at least it was something it wasn't just a bunch of guys doing an album saying okay right. you know, bye well i think uh i think a primary target for dream child should be definitely uh like some of these uh monsters of rock cruises and some of these festivals i think that should be a primary target for your booking agent to get you guys on some of these things because uh that gives you exposure uh to a mass uh, at, you know, at one time, you know what I mean? Yes, I do. Exactly. Thank you for that. Yeah, I agree. Or just like maybe some of Ronnie's old friends, you know, some of the guys from Iron Maiden or sure. Scorpions, because they loved Ronnie, you know, they were all friends, you know, or somebody like that, you know, who's doing a, a tour and we, they pick us up for a month, you know, or something like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. You know? Uh, so if I had to describe dream child to people that haven't heard the record out again, it's called until death, do we meet again on frontiers record, go out and pick it up. I'm sure we'll be playing some samples of the music throughout this show. Once I put this show together, if I had to describe the band, I'd say it's kind of a mixture of, Do Deep Purple and White Snake, uh, not White Snake, but Do Deep Purple and Rainbow. No, yeah, you're right about White Snake because there's definitely some White Snake flavor in like Midnight Song, in a world so cold and playing with fire. There's even some early Van Halen stuff in there, bits and pieces. There's some Genesis in there. There's definitely Rainbow, Deep Purple, a little bit of you know. A little bit of Dio only because that's, you know, Diego's got the, the attributes that Ronnie, nobody can sing like Ronnie. Let I me mean, you know, get that out of the way. You know, yeah. nobody. You know, he was the first and last of his kind. But Diego, it's not his fault that he was blessed with similar attributes. Well, I, I don't take it as that either. You know, I think I think it, he sounds like that. But some of the music just has sort of that feeling or that vibe to me that that some of the Dio stuff had. You know, not necessarily sounding exactly like it at all. Yeah, because it's not a reproduction <laughs> or trying to or, or a replica. It's an, an influenced yeah. by. Yeah, so it's basically if you've ever found yourself saying, wow, they don't make music like that anymore after listening to a Rainbow Rising album or a Deep Purple Burn or Stormbringer or Perfect Strangers album or, you know, uh, White Snake, then this hopefully is the album for you. <laughs> now I'm going to let you tell me whether I'm right or not, but I, I consider that on this uh, little journey uh, that I did 
uh, to look into Craig Goldie's past and, and dig up some stuff. I feel like a little bit of a rock and roll detective. So I'm listening to, I'm listening okay. to the dream child record and I was a rough cut fan as well. And so, oh. <laughs> so I'm listening to, you know where I'm going with You're this, the don't you? Person. There's only been two so, people. <laughs> so I'm listening to the Dream Child record, and this song called It Is What It Is comes on, and I'm like, okay, holy shit, that breakdown is 100% taker from the Rough Cut's first record. And then I go and I do my investigation. I'm like, shit, Craig Goldie had co-writing credits on this song. Is that what that is? Yeah, because the way they played that riff was wrong. <laughs> that riff actually was on the demo that got me the audition for Rock which Cut. is stuff that I've never heard. I mean, I've never heard any of the demo stuff or any of that stuff, but so it was my riff before I even got into the band. Yeah. I mean, they gave you writing credits on the song. Yeah, but they, they didn't play it right. <laughs> so, and, and they turned it into a pop song. Mine was real dark, you know? So in the song, it is what it is. It's more of a breakdown that goes into like this dark place rather than rather than a pop chorus. Well, yeah, it's it's just that little riff section, and it's I don't know if I consider that a pop song from Rough Cut, and definitely not a pop song from Dream Child. It's just a, I, it's a riff, and and you know I liked I liked it on the Rough Cut version. It sounds similar. You're saying they're playing it wrong. It sounds similar to what's being done, but yeah, you're the guy that wrote it, so you know, <laughs> you know what it is. <laughs> well. Well, I, I, I'm definitely from the Blackmore school. Yeah. Like people don't play "Man on the Silver Mountain" riff correctly. Uh, for the same token, that is the reason why they don't play the Taker riff correctly, which was actually a you know, like I said, a riff before I even joined the the band. Yeah. So because there's in between notes and that they don't play. So you know, when on "Man on the Silver Mountain," you know, everybody goes. That's what they hear. Yeah. But there's in between notes. It's the bon dun 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 bon dun dun bon dun 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 bon They're subtle, but they're there. Right. Which gives it a totally different sound than if you exclude them. But everybody excludes them. Same thing with the taker riff. It's dando 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 dando. Don't dan, don't dan, don't dan. But they went bam, 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 yeah. bam, bam, bam. You see what yeah, I mean? Absolutely. You, if you take away those in between notes, it changes the feel drastically. Yeah. So that's the similar thing.
damn Goldie, you know your shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just like, you know, I mean, it, it's because I'm it, because of Richie Blackmore. It's all his fault because I had trying to learn how, to, you know, I mean, the way he plays, especially like, you know, the, the man on the Silver Mountain riff, you know, I mean, it's like if you just listen to it, it's plain as day. The intro, you don't hear it so much during the song. Just because, you know, once the bass and drums and clavinet and everything are in there, you know, it, it doesn't seem as, as pronounced, you know, but it's there from the very beginning when you very, when you hear the very first, when he's all by himself, you can hear it. Yeah. Do you ever verify any of that shit through him and go, Hey, is this, uh, is this right? Well, actually, I didn't have to because I just, I mean, I, I couldn't help but hear it because when I heard other people play it, it's like, wait a minute, you know, when, well, at least I did anyways, it's kind of like, that's why, I mentioned when I can draw. A lot of times when I'd learn Blackmore solos, it's a lot like if I was trying to draw somebody. Yeah. You know, I would sit there with a blank piece of paper. Like, let's say if you're sitting in a chair and I say, okay, now stay like that. Don't move. Now you got to stay still for the next 20 minutes while I look at you, stare at your face, look down at a blank page. Okay. I'm going to start with your nose and I'm going to figure out the shape of your nose. And then I'm going to figure out, okay, the space between your eyes has to be the same. You know, the distance between the bottom of your nose and the and the bottom of your eye has to be the same. The space between the bottom of your nose and the top of your lip has to be the same. If there's the slightest fluctuation between those, the drawing's not going to look like you. Yeah, man. And so, uh, you know, I keep looking up and, you know, so in a lot, in many ways that gave me a, a, a very interesting perspective when I would listen to music and try to learn it. Yeah, you really do see uh, music in colors then, don't you? Well, that and also just what it's actually made of, you know, because first, you know, when you see the, when I draw, it's it's the contours first and then you shade it in. So when I see people, I see their contours. I don't see, you know, well, I can, I can tell when a woman, she needs makeup and she doesn't. <laughs> yeah. When she needs long hair and when she doesn't, right. you know, you know, that, that short hair ain't working. Because it's making your nose look big, you know, and I can see that. Okay, I know what you look like without a makeup. I know because I I know what if I were to draw that person, what her contours would be before I shade it. Yeah. So in a similar way, I you know I listened to that D Deep Purple Burn album so many times that not only did I know what guitar was made of, but I would find myself being able to hum along with the drums, the keyboards, the bass, all the vocals. I knew what the background vocals were, and you know. So when I started programming drums and gotten into that stuff, all of a sudden I find myself, you know, doing things, trying to program drums like they would have, you know what I mean? You know, it's interesting because I think your brain is probably, uh, you know, your brain is probably wired like a, a eight track or 24 track where you can separate all this stuff in your brain. Mine, mine doesn't work like that, unfortunately. And I, I, I don't know what they call that, like an idiot savant of music or whatever. No, 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 no. God bless you because it's, it's sometimes it's a blessing and a curse, you know, because sometimes because I draw, I love to watch a certain era of the, the Warner Brothers cartoons yeah. that were directed by a guy named uh, Chuck Jones because he had some really great drawings. On DVD, I can hit pause and then I can go frame by frame. Uh -huh. So I'll be watching something with my girlfriend and I'll see, see that? She'll go, what? And I'll, I'll rewind it and I'll let it go by in real time again. You see that? What? You know, and I'll give them ample time to, to find it. And then finally I'll go and I'll pause it and I'll go frame by frame and I go, there it is. 
See right there, they're white glove. They didn't fill in the white glove. It's brown right there for that one frame. I can see it go by. Yeah, it's exactly what I said. Your 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 brain is wired a particular way, and and God bless you. I mean, I wish that I had some of that <laughs> talent. That's probably why you picked up the guitar like it was, like it was easy. But uh, yeah, it's probably a curse because you probably can't sleep at night because you're always thinking about fifty different things. It was funny you say that because <laughs> there was a time, a really good friend of mine. He's listening to one of my albums, and he looked at me, and he goes, no wonder you can't sleep. He goes, because that's in your head. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I mean, I've know, listen, I've known, people, I, I've known people like you, and that sounds horrible, but I know people like you. I've known people like yeah. you, but it really does, you know, I think it probably comes down to brain wiring. I can't, me personally, I can't do 50 things at once. My brain's not wired that way. I'm a very, um, I'm almost obsessive compulsive where I have to do, I have to do one thing and move it along and do two things. And I'm just very clean, organized and neat in what I do. And you're one of those that sees 50 things all at the same time and, and can strip them down and isolate them. And yeah, God bless you. <laughs> well, thank you for that. But I mean, I'm, that's the see. That's the beautiful thing about restoring balance again, because we all are different. You know, nobody's more important than anybody else. Nobody's better than anybody else. You know, and even in the Bible, it says, you know, like if where much is given, much is required. So if I have a lot going on, then that means there's a lot required of me. Yep. You know, where less is given, you know, less is required. But at the same time, it's kind of like you know, I'm glad that my thumb doesn't have a brain and a mouth and an attitude because it would and and so therefore because of that it won't argue with me because it would rather be the eyes or the smile because the eyes and the smile get more attention than a thumb yeah but if i'm thirsty i need my thumb to grasp that cup so i can pick up the glass and drink so i'm glad my thumb doesn't you know decide i'm better than this right i'm not going to be a thumb i want to be an eye <laughs> yeah do you get my point? Yeah. I, you know, we all, you know, nothing, you know, f there's, there's a reason for a fucking toenail. Right. You know, there's, you know, we all have to, you know, it, there's a reason for that. And, and, and it all works together and nothing's more important than anything else. You know, nobody's too small and nobody's too insignificant. Nobody's more significant than anybody else. We tend to see people that way, but that's, things aren't always as they seem. Nobody's more important than anybody else. Nobody's better than anybody else. I think we all play our part in uh, in the world, yeah. you know, and your part is to take all this stuff that's in your head and put it on uh, uh, tape and put it out there to the world. And um, my job is to love it and promote it and get people <laughs> to hear it and let, let you tell your story uh, for the listeners to listen because uh, you got you got a great and a unique story and I hope one day uh, that you write a book because uh, I think you got a damn good book in you at some point. <laughs> well, thank you, my friend. I I started started it already, but yeah, at some point I will definitely. Thank you for that. Yeah. Definitely, I think you got a, a great uh, story and a great uh, book, and it's not just the part about uh, you standing on stage with Ronnie James Dio. I think there's a lot more to that story that needs to be told, and I think it's uh, <laughs> I think it's good. Uh, I think that it's good if you can put that in there. And uh, 
uh, share that with the world. I think uh, there's there's definite positive things that can come out of that for sure. Well, thank you for that. I really do appreciate that, my friend. Thank you. So you have been completely awesome uh, with sharing your time, and and there's nothing I can say. I mean, you've spent way more time than I can even dream of, uh, but I'm going to let you go right after I do this quick little lightning round with you. You up for having a little bit of fun, Craig? Absolutely. Let's have a little fun. Go for it. All right. The song you wish you'd wrote. (laughs) Oh, that's almost like asking... um if it's one song, which would you rather do, inhale or exhale? <laughs> I would say Stargazer. All right, cool. Favorite song to play live? Actually, either Last in Line or, or Don't Talk to Strangers. Oh, God, I love Don't Talk to Strangers. Such a great song. Band or artist you want to see live in 2018? Well, some of them are passed away, but I just, you know, um, that's a good question. Do you go to many shows? No, I don't get a chance to go to many shows, you know. Um, I guess Deep Purple. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I love Steve Morris. I mean, you know, it's, he doesn't black more out, but I mean, yeah. what he's brought to that band. I, You know, even, quite honestly, I like the Tommy Bolin album, the album, not the tours, yeah. but the album, Come Taste the Band. I, You know, I knew that it wasn't going to be Blackmore, but it certainly did show, you know, how great... Coverdale, Glenn Hughes, John Lord, and Ian Pace. Oh, are. man. I would have liked to have seen the original uh, version of Purple. Because they did do some really great albums and stuff, and they got, I mean, Don Airy is amazing. Steve Morris is amazing. Then they got, you know, the original, you know, Ian, well, not the original, because the original was you know, uh, Rod Evans and Nick Simper on bass. But, I mean, to me, the original is always Ian Gillen, Roger Glover. Richie Blackmore, Ian Pace, John yeah, Lord. But, same for me. But my first introduction was the Burn album, and there was only two albums like that. Mach 2, right? Isn't that what they call it, the Mach 2 version? I guess. I guess, yeah. But, I mean, and even Stormbringer, you know, was a little too R&B for most people, and I understand that. There was really only one album, really, that had that you know the greatest aspect of that lineup, and that was Burn. And that's what started it all for me. Yep. Two Desert Island albums you bring. Burn and Rainbow Rising. Both Blackmore records. Okay. Best concert you ever attended? Opening up for Perfect Strangers tour, because I would go out in the crowd and watch them every night. Uh, okay. Awesome. Mine was a uh, Sacred Heart tour. <laughs> oh, <laughs> great. <laughs> so there you go. Last album you purchased or downloaded, whatever. Song remains the same, Led Zeppelin. All right, yeah. so so I know the answer is Blackmore, but Randy Rhodes or Eddie Van Halen? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Once again, inhale or exhale. Uh, if I had to only listen to one for the rest of my life, I guess it would be Randy Rhodes. Okay. Your favorite personal guitar? Actually, right now, the ESP M2. Is that yeah. the, the black one with the upside-down yeah. headstock? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Pedal you can't live without. A pedal I can't live without. Yeah. Uh, I guess maybe uh, a delay. Yeah. Zeppelin Stone or the Beatles? <laughs> That's a good one. Zeppelin. Do you sing in the shower or the car? I used to sing in the car, but for some reason, I, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> Why? Did somebody catch you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I guess because now traffic is so screwed up that I'm constantly having to listen to the the traffic report, so I don't have to wait for the database for the um, about traffic. Because when I, because I go, I live in San Diego now, so I drive, yeah. to, I drive to L.A. a lot. So 
that used to be my time to listen to music and just take it easy, you know, and have like two and a half hours to myself or, you know, I didn't have to do anything. Now it's like so there's about four or five different routes you can take. And and that's what brought the out, the song It Is What It Is, because I keep hearing people say that all the time. Well, it is what it is. <laughs> I thought that would make a great title for a song. You know? There you go. The the inspiration comes even in stressful moments when you're sitting in traffic. Oh, that's where You Can't Take Me Down came from. It was from one of my worst days. I, everything was not working. Everything. Phone, computers, TV. I mean, everything. Nothing was going right. I mean, I tried to put a pair of socks on and it would go the wrong way. It's like I'm, having a, I'm sitting there having an argument with a pair of socks. You know, and it's just like I'm thinking, you know, I'm standing in the middle of my apartment like a crazy person going, you can't take me down, you know. And yeah. I thought, oh, wait, that's a cool premise for a song. So I sat down, and all of a sudden, the song just came to me. So out of my worst days came one of my favorite choruses I ever wrote.
if it makes you feel any better, I think everybody that's hit 50 uh, has those same days. <laughs> I think I'm a little bit younger than you, but not by much. I'm... Oh, that's funny. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> so. You've been awesome. Let me absolutely let you go, Craig. You've been fantastic. I appreciate everything that you've shared with us today. And you too, man. Let's just stay in touch because there's a lot of other stuff coming up I'd like to talk to you about. Yeah, this was great, man. Thank you. You're welcome anytime, my friend. Thank you. You have a great day, and I really enjoyed this. You know, this is an honor for me too, you know, to be, you know, to have people ask me to be thought of as important to, to be interviewed is something very special, you know. It's an honor. And then to and then to enjoy it as much as we did was it was a conversation between two friends instead of an interview about an album coming out. <laughs> That's what we like to do. That's exactly the way we like it. Yes, job well done. <laughs> Thanks, brother. Thank you, man. See ya. Keep in touch.
Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.